Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. The Law Most everyone's concerned about whether the massive stimulus programs and money printing resulting from the pandemic will wreck the economy and destroy the dollar and lead to runaway inflation. What I think many fail to see is that there's a tsunami of hidden stimulus that's ready to be unleashed on the economy because of recently enacted California and federal legislation. Today we'll take a brief look at these new laws and then I'll discuss whether inflation or deflation is a likely result of this massive stimulus and whether cryptocurrency is a way out. I'll discuss this with Matt Muldoon. Matt's a former fire captain in Marin County, California, and a noted foosbologist. Finally, we'll ask, where's the love? In our final segment, we'll analyze the recent decision of Major League Baseball to move the All-Star game out of Georgia and ask if it would bring about more love to leave politics out of sports and instead to have a once-a-year cage-fighting match between the leaders of the Democratic and Republican parties. First, the new laws. Let's go back to how they started right after the pandemic with federal laws. Starting with the CARES Act of March 20th, 2020, the federal government unleashed hidden stimulus in the form of eviction and foreclosure moratoriums and gave borrowers the right to seek forbearance on what's referred to as federally backed mortgages. Federal agencies such as FHA and government service enterprises such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac took their cue from the CARES Act and they enacted separate eviction and foreclosure moratoriums. They gave borrowers the rights to seek forbearance on, again, federally-backed mortgages. The CDC jumped into the act to impose eviction moratoriums as part of public health and safety concerns. These foreclosure and eviction moratoriums and loan forbearance options have been continuously extended since March of 2020 and are now extended through June 30th of 2021. In some instances, Mortgage forbearance, which when I refer to that, I mean no payments or deferral of payments, is just for as long as 18 months. California, meanwhile, was busily enacting its own statewide moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures, first through emergency orders from the governor, and then by voluntary agreements to forbear by the largest loan servicers in the state. An emergency order issued by the California Judicial Council on August 13, 2020, prohibiting California courts from Issuing a summons or entering a default on an eviction case also helps stop lenders and landlords from enforcing contractual rights, while the California legislature came up with more far-ranging laws. Then finally, in August of 2020, California enacted further legislation to slow down evictions and foreclosures and to encourage workouts. So we're going to talk about the primary legislation that came out of California, and that's AB 3088. It was enacted on... August 31st, 2020, some of the most notable provisions are it expanded coverage and protections of the HOBAR, the 
that's called the uh, California Homeowners Bill of Rights, not only to owners of single-family residences, but also to owners of one through four unit real properties. In other words, to rental property owners. So now if tenants aren't paying the owner, the owner can get relief as well as the individual homeowner. The bill also requires that lenders and services on covered loans delay foreclosures so they can discuss foreclosure alternatives before proceeding with foreclosure. There's other requirements restricting the foreclosure process that are applicable to larger servicers. Also, new laws under AB 3088 require that servicers on covered loans stop and review requests for loan forbearance, meaning that if a borrower or an owner of a rental property can show that there's a COVID-19 hardship, they can ask for forbearance, which is a, a really a different variation on foreclosure alternatives such as loan modifications or deeds in lieu of foreclosure. And in some instances, forbearance will uh, stop a foreclosure uh, so that the servicer must properly review and respond to the forbearance request before the servicer can proceed with foreclosure. We're going to talk about SB 91, which is like a stepchild of AB 38 in just a second, as part of uh, what AB 3088 did in terms of landlord-tenant relationships. Let's talk about that first. First, AB 38 most notably imposed a eviction moratorium on residential mortgages where the evictions were based on non-payment of rent. In essence, the state reserved exclusive jurisdiction to regulate and put a moratorium on evictions for uh, non-payment of rent. But what the, also the legislation allowed was it allowed a local override for evictions based on other items in the landlord-tenant sphere. So, for instance, if a local municipality uh, decided that they wanted to prohibit uh, evictions or put a moratorium on evictions based on other uh, breaches of the lease, for example, a, a leach breach based on nuisance or a leased assignment, then uh, they could do that as well. Also, uh, AB 38 allowed deferral of COVID-19 related debt on the lease. And it provided that if a tenant paid 25% of the outstanding rent, then there'd be no eviction. Didn't mean that the landlord waived the rest of the rent, but instead the landlord would have to collect it by going to state court. And in order to help remedy that, the, uh, the legislation amended the small claims court laws to allow landlords to be able to go in for a larger amount. They increased the jurisdictional amount of small claims court and the number of times that a landlord could sue in small claims court. But still, the overriding result was to try and encourage workouts between landlords and tenants. Another uh, noted provision of SB 91 was, uh, it, and it's still in flux right now at this point, uh, is if a landlord agrees to waive 20% of the rent that's owed by a tenant, that the state of California may in fact fund the remaining payment of the 80% delinquent rent to the landlord. That's significant. Again, hidden stimulus. So the clear result of this legislation and all the federal and state legislation that was enacted regarding the COVID-19 pandemic is that there's billions and billions of dollars in hidden stimulus that's accumulating as a result of the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums and forbearance from rent and mortgage payments. So compare that to the mortgage meltdown of 2007 and 2008. That also evidenced an attempt by state and federal governments to slow down the rates of foreclosures and evictions and give the economy a time to heal. But it's clear that the results of the pandemic are far, far different. 
While the mortgage meltdown was structural in nature, it was limited primarily to one sector, the financial services sector. The pandemic affects all areas. It's systematic. You could argue that greed took down lenders, investors, homeowners, and speculators who all got the inevitable result when the mortgage meltdown occurred. But the pandemic dwarfs anything done during the mortgage meltdown. No one asked for the pandemic, and most are looking for the government to save us all. Whether this leads to an explosion of easy money and runaway inflation, or whether it leads to deflation, will be the topic of my interview, my interview with Matt Muldoon. Laws and Real Estate All right, I'm here with my guest tonight, Matt Muldoon. We're talking about inflation versus deflation, especially in respect to real property. What was that question you asked me? Uh, actually, Spencer, I don't think there's really anything to talk about here. I mean, with the, the government printing currency, with the printing press that's more doped up than a Tour de France contender, how can that be anything but inflationary? That's, that's a great question. So I'll give you the other side of the argument. Can I convince you if I'm compelling? Possibly. All right. So here, that's a great argument. Everybody is doing that. That's the biggest tension right now. Is there going to be inflation or deflation? Everybody realizes they're pumping out money faster than a one-armed paper hanger. I get you on that. Absolutely true. But the question is, what's going on with the money? So if the money is being saved or it's being bought via treasury bonds or whatever by the Fed and not recirculated, then it's not inflationary. There may be a ton of money out there but it's not being put into the system enough for people to go out and start having so much money and buying so many goods that there's all of a sudden a run on those goods, which is inflationary. So, for example, the savings rate in this country has gone up more than, you know, probably at any time higher than history. People are scared. Asian economy, which people think China is going to be the engine that drives the world, um, they're savers notoriously and not big consumers. So you got a lot of money being printed, but not a lot of money being spent. So on one sense, or in one sense, you see the expectation of inflation driving up some of the bond yields and people think, well, okay, therefore because uh, you know people are, are wanting to pay more for bonds because the risk is greater than inflation's going up. But other people, most notably Gary Schilling, are saying things like, you're pushing on a string and there's no demand, such a high savings rate that no matter how much money you pump in, it's not really inflationary. The long run result is going to be because there is economic insecurity, job losses, and lack of purchasing power that there's going to be deflation. Does that sound crazy? Well, no more crazy than anything else. But what does Schilling use as an inflationary index? You know, I, again, I'm not an economist. I'm saying I, I deal with in terms of you know how it's going to impact our clients. But I'll say to you that uh, he uses statistics to show, well, like for example, what is the demand for loans? And again, when rates were being pushed down to like 2.8 percent, right, on a 30-year loan, people were lining up. Everybody and their brother the, who could had a loan wanted to refinance because 2.8 was better than anything you had. And again, I'm older than Abe Lincoln, but when I grew up, I remember when there was 17% interest rate, the idea that you're going to get a 30-year loan for you know, 2.8% or whatever, everybody's loaning up. But the minute they started, the bond yield curves changed and they started to raise them back up to 3.2, 3.5% on your loan, mortgage applications dropped off. So I'm saying to you that in some respects, that's part of the reason why people are getting in there, low rates. And uh, it's attractive, but once you get to a point where somebody doesn't have a job or they're insecure about their economic future, 
and the rates go up even a little, maybe they go up to 3.8 or 4%, that the argument for deflation is there. And that is that the only way you'll keep people coming back for more loans is to lower the rates even more. So you're not older than Abe Lincoln and you're not nearly as tall. Um, <laughs> I, I've read articles that said that the true inflation rate is two to three times higher than the official CPI. How does that affect anything you're saying? Well, let's, let's, just, let's just assume that real inflation, what you're paying for rice, beans, gasoline, and so forth, is way higher than what we're being told. Does that, does that matter at all? No, that's a good point. I mean, and again, there's, there's so many different facets of what might be inflation or deflation. That's a great point. And I, same thing, I go to Whole Foods. I mean, I, I'm not you know, much of a shopper, but I do my little Whole Foods shopping on Sunday. And, and when uh, a pint of raspberries goes up from $3.99 to $4.99, I can see it. But so I'm saying to you, there's a difference between, there might be like other people besides inflation versus deflation, there's another guy named Peter Schilling. I listen to him sometimes. His well, guy's name Schilling, huh? Gary what? Schilling, Peter Schilling. No, very good. Peter Schilling. Peter Schiff. You got me on that one. It's, like, it's Peter Schiff. His his response is stagflation. Now, what he's saying is that yes, the price of these goods, gasoline, food goods, commodities, they are going up, and in fact, that is inflationary. But yet, the economic potential for people, meaning that the unemployment rate is going to be going up along with it, and the demand to be able to spur economic growth, as we talked about, is like pushing on a string and won't be there. So the net result will be lower economic growth and an inflation in some of the prices, which they call stagflation, which you got higher rates, lower growth. But that, that's a, a midpoint between the three. Again, that's, that's another alternative. Between the three? Between inflation, yeah. deflation, and potentially stagflation. Stagflation. All right, so it's got nothing to do with deer. No, that's that's a good question. <laughs> that, that it is deer to me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, there's something in there. Well, what do you think? I mean, you think. Uh, and what do I think? Yeah, I mean, what do you think? Like, do you think this is like asking the janitor what he thinks about uh, Elon Musk's latest rocket? <laughs> You know, you know, but you're, everything that you base your future on is going to be like that, whether or not uh, you, know, you decide how to invest or whether you're going to buy real estate or sell it or whatever. So, I mean, do you think prices are going to continue to go up or are they, are they going down? Um, I think when, historically, when governments debase their currency um, by unmooring it from any real-life value, and then printing the crap out of it, it becomes worthless. And so things end up costing more in terms of the currency. Something that used to cost a buck now costs two, and then it costs 10, then it costs 100. So, I mean, on my basic level, understanding how stuff works, that's, that's what it looks like to me. So you hit on two things. So over the course of time, everything you said is true. Anything you bought, hundred years ago, it's going to cost you 10 or 100 times, whatever times more now. So clearly there's inflation. But do you think that when you say currency debasement, that's a different argument as to whether or not the currency you have becomes worthless because people lose faith in it via the Weimar Republic or whatever. And uh, you get to a point where your currency is worth nothing. Do you think that's the future? That's different from inflation. Well, it depends on what you're paying for example, if you if you continue to pay in 
the debased currency, you'll be paying more, more units of that currency. Um, but if you could find an alternate currency, like a cryptocurrency, then that won't happen or may not happen. All right, so let's get, that's great. Let's do a segue into cryptocurrency. But before we get there, the transition, because one thing you said, and that's interesting worth noting, is that you're saying if you could pay in your own currency, you got to pay more and more. And that's the whole thing. The, that, the, the reason that the U.S. can live on debt, borrow debt and issuing its own debt is because we have the reserve currency, right? So everybody accepts dollars. When you're buying something in you know, Tehran or, or Mozambique or whatever, you, for the most part, 88% of the transactions in the world are being handled by dollars, right? People have to convert their currency to dollars. So we can call the tune. We can debase and issue all these you know, notes and, and print out money. It's our currency. All we have to do is print more of it. As long as people recognize the dollar is the reserve currency, right? But as soon as they don't, then all of a sudden, then you might run into currency debasement where you become, uh, you know, the Weimar Republic. But I'm saying to you that right now, that's the, the MMT or modern monetary theory. You know, they're presupposing the fact that it doesn't matter. As long as we buy things in our own currency, we can print as much as we want. Everybody's got to come to us. So do cryptocurrencies represent a threat to the hegemony of the greenback? Great question. All right, so you want to switch to crypto? Yeah, if you do. We were on what we were on. We were on Gnostic Gospels, right? We can go back to that too if you want. That will be on the, the next segment. <laughs> crypto. Let's go to crypto. We're doing a recap of what we talked about before. So about crypt crypto. Yeah. All right, blockchain. Yeah. There's so crypto. There's blockchain. Two separate things. Yes. I, I, again, I think any description of crypto, because people look at crypto as the way out of. Uh, you know, fiat currency and, 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 and maybe gold too. It's just the old guys. You know, gold is for the old guys. Crypto is for the new guys. But you have to make a distinction. We talked about this, that um, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, Ethereum, and any really uh, marquee name is really just a marquee for blockchain technology. There's a difference between what you make out of blockchain technology and the technology itself. A lot of people think, at least let's go back to the history in my little uh, vignette here, is that cypherpunks invented uh, Bitcoin for the idea that they would have a currency that would not be controlled and would be free of government regulation. And therefore, because for all, and without getting into all the specifics that we did before of how you make a Bitcoin and how you have these miners who are ensuring the authenticity of it or... Uh, you know, the, the legitimacy that's only your Bitcoin and there's only 21 million of them or whatever, uh, that's the technology behind it. But whether or not the Bitcoin itself has any intrinsic value is separate. Blockchain technology, I think, in my mind, is here to stay. And all governments, the Chinese government most recently, but all governments will eventually see that if they have Bitcoin running amok, unregulated, that it's a threat to their ability to regulate, control uh, currency, and they will never allow uh, Bitcoins to operate independently of their hegemony, as you would say. So uh, Yuval Harari talks about useful fictions and currency being one of them. Um, a currency is only valuable if we all agree that it's valuable. Um, after all, it, it's, it has no intrinsic value apart from what we impute to it. Um, which is why gold is, separate, is a different kind of thing. 
So would it be possible for governments to say, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're coming down on cryptos, um, we're outlawing and whatever, um, but people not buying into the collective, you know, hallucination or, or the, the useful fiction that what the government is putting forward as a currency um, is in fact has have any value. In other words, it's like a market. It's like a worldwide market. We're not buying into your currency. We're and and so um, the government being overridden by a global market move. Uh, very democratic in a way. No, I love that. It's great. That's like what I'm relating to what you're saying is that, is that we're mad as hell and we're not taking it anymore. That, and we have an alternative. What is it? Uh, crypto. Exactly. Okay, good. So that's a wonderful, and that is that is the libertarian cypherpunk idea that we can escape government regulation. But if you look at it now and see, like again, we're talking on uh, you know April eighth here right now, whatever. But we're talking about the Chinese uh, already making their own cryptocurrency. There is little doubt that any any government, especially if you look at the Chinese Communist Party, is ever going to let something like that happen. You can say we're mad as hell, we're not going to take it anymore. But how many people walked you know, willingly into any government regulation via the coronavirus that was they were told to do? So if somebody's telling you we're going to shut down your bank account, shut down your ability to uh, conduct commerce of your business or whatever, if you don't... Uh, do things our way and disavow or dis, you know abuse yourself of the cryptocurrency uh, freedom notion. Chances are, I think most people are going to do that, don't you? Yeah, I suppose. But it seems like in the past, whenever a government tries to, by law, um, attribute value to a currency or, or control. Um, you know, uh, supply demand for a currency. It's it's like trying to put a lid on a on a volcano. I mean, you you might be able to hold it on there for a while, but eventually it breaks free and you have hyperinflation or whatever it is that you have. You, you cannot if if there's no agreement into the useful fiction, you can't you can't by law create one for long. It won't endure. No, I, I get that. I think what you're saying is that if the result is so catastrophic that people just, you know, they can't abide by it, I get you. There's revolution, there's World War II or whatever there is. But uh, I'm just saying in terms of, I think when we started this vignette off, the issue is cryptocurrency. And I think you have to break it down to blockchain and then the various, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, rollouts on that. And I, I think that... The question is really going to be whether or not the governments eclipse all that and take away the uh, unique role that Bitcoin and Ethereum has and, and do it themselves. And if you're saying that uh, if economic catastrophe comes, people won't buy into that, you know, what will they buy into? You know, I mean, you, you can sit in your bunker with guns and gold and, uh, and, your, and your food, you know, but the bottom line is in this day and age, you need the government to survive and they control 90% of what you do. So a quart of wheat for a day's wages from Revelation. Could that be, you know, that currency itself becomes obsolete and, and we return to a Stone Age um, barter system where, hey, you know, I got a loaf of bread. You can have that. Give me your flint arrow points or whatever it might be. That's, that's an excellent question. Although I will say that there's a big journey to the end of that question. If, if you have to buy like a... Uh, a piece of uh, 
Red buys a bag of gold. I get that. Everything is so bad now, it's done and over with. So who cares? You know? But on the way to that, if that ever happens, if there's ever uh, Armageddon, I think that uh, the question as to whether or not the government will have absolute control, if you're talking biblically, you're looking at you know, whether there's some mark or requirement that you have to have to buy or sell. That's different. But uh, I will say that whether that's just you know far-fung uh, possibilities or whether or not crypto is a bridge to that, it's clear right now that blockchain is going to be a uh, a way not necessarily to escape government regulation, but for governments to regulate us even more. Wow, that's not what it's supposed to do, is it? No, that's ironic. So, what are you advising your clients given the specter of this whole thing, uh, the specter of crypto and uh, inflation, deflation, the, the whole mix together? I, I prophesy. Can't. <laughs> I can't. It's, I can't say that because I'm not an economist. I look; these things are interesting to me. But I look at the uh, the trends are clearly uh, a battle right now between whether or not there's going to be inflation or deflation. We've talked about that. But you know, as far as the real estate market goes, uh, I mean, we've seen some spectacular uh, examples of, of run-ups, and usually there's a recovery. Like if you look at the 2007 or 2008 mortgage meltdown, uh, the big short and all that. You know that that wasn't systematic. That was you know there was a pocket of, of of the economy where you know mortgages were being in effect marketed worldwide because the yields were so small in savings account like they are now, where nobody could get yield, and you could find you know, anybody you could fog America could qualify for a mortgage, and you know you could sell a four or five percent, six percent mortgage loan, seven uh, percent worldwide, and people would buy it just for the yield. But when that collapsed and tanked. That segment went down and, and it was a shock to the system, but it wasn't catastrophic. COVID-19, and in my estimation, the confluence of COVID-19 and the George Floyd death. George the, Floyd? Yeah, so we can get into that as well. <laughs> they were catalysts that changed and accelerated things well, well beyond what was going on with the mortgage meltdown. The mortgage meltdown, you could fix it up systematically, repair it. COVID-19 uh, launched the issue that we're all in it together, no one's to blame, and therefore the government will save us all, and the government has been increasingly regulating everything. The George Floyd uh, death has resulted in the fact that some people are now crying for an outcry of social justice that will change the sociology behind how the government regulates. But the bottom line is uh, much different than it was before, so how am I advising my clients? I mean, the question is now whether or not, will there be inflation or deflation? Uh, also, will the system itself be able to endure the way it is right now, or will it, you know, recover like it did from the mortgage meltdown? That's for another episode. Amen, brother. Everything else that matters. Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? On April 2nd, 2021, Major League Baseball announced that it was moving the All-Star Game out of Georgia as a sign of solidarity. Apparently, various woke groups teamed up with MLB and some of its corporate sponsors and deemed Georgia's recently enacted voting reform bill as racist. Serious competition for new sites arose between Berkeley, California, the free zones of Chaz and Chop in Seattle, and in the island of Guam. However, MLB stunned the nation by moving the game to Colorado, 
which appears to have a more restrictive voter registration policy than Georgia does. When I grew up, sports was a unique world. Competition bred incomparable achievements and rivalries that were passed on from generation to generation. My dad was born in Brooklyn and he loved all things Dodgers and Giants. He eventually moved to New England and he raised a family that loved all things New England. We love those individuals and the teams that defy logic and the odds. Even when renegades like Mike Tyson or, or Colin McGregor win, we celebrate them. While professional sports like baseball had questionable racial policies years ago, fast forward to the present. Every race, color, and creed competes together in professional sports in relative harmony while raking in millions. Meanwhile, the average fan like me finds it increasingly difficult to be able to even watch sports because the corporate overlords and activists demand that you bow to their changing political dictates as part of the price to watch. So I've got a thought. In the old days, if politicians could not solve their differences, having a duel was an accepted way to solve the issue. That's probably politically incorrect now, and it's even barbaric in this day and age, but there's a suitable substitute. Cage fighting. Imagine if intractable social programs or, or problems such as immigration, voter suppression, gun control, even rooting for the Patriots could be resolved in a cage match. Think about it. Trump versus Biden, Maddow versus Hannity, Cuomo versus DeSantis. Winner take all on any given issue. It would force our leaders to get in shape, stand behind their ideas with more than just media spin, and it would be entertaining as well. So if you think this might restore the love, let me know. We might be able to start a new trend. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos!